Thanks, Becky and Music Worship Team. Good morning, everyone. My name is Troy. I'm one of the leaders here at Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you again. And I want to begin this morning with a picture that I want you to take a look at. Take a look at this next slide. What I want you to do is I want you to engage with me here and say, when you see this picture, what words come to mind? Salmon. Thank you, Jennifer. That was great. Lunch. Thanks. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Swimming upstream. What'd you say? Bears. Yeah. Tenacity. Determination. Yeah, that's where I was kind of really trying to go. Thank you uh, for that. I think um, I think each one of us can probably identify with these fish in some part of our life, right? In some ways of our life, we feel like we're probably swimming upstream, especially when it comes to our faith, right? A lot of times I think in matters of faith, we may feel like, you know, whether it's a comment from some of our extended relatives or maybe it's someone that we work with makes a comment or you look at a book title on the shelf or you watch a Netflix documentary and you feel like, wow, this is really swimming upstream. And so you can identify with that probably maybe in, in the area of faith. There may be other areas of your life you can identify it as well. Now, some of you may be able to, to, to take it a step further and identify with this next picture even more, right? Again, so... You know, fish can't think, they got tiny brains, whatever, but I mean, this fish has got to be thinking, you have got to be kidding me. After all that, right into the mouth of the bear, right? But I think, I think we can probably identify to some extent. And, and some of you maybe are here this morning and you are, uh, you're tired. You're tired of swimming upstream. Or you're discouraged. Some of you maybe are here and you're like, I, I, even, I don't even swim upstream because I'm just, I don't know. I just let the current kind of carry me where the current goes. Some of you maybe are here and you're like, I never even started swimming because that looks really hard and I just don't want to get eaten by a bear anyway. You know what I mean? You think about this is maybe where you might be at. And so you're like, I don't know if I even want to go there. Wherever you're at in your faith journey. What we want to do for the next couple of months is we want to take a look at a, at a, at a, a book in the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament, called Daniel. Because we believe that even though this book is like over 2,000 years, years old, that it, um, it's going to be relevant for us today. Okay? So um, what I want to do is I want to start by giving you some context from the Bible Project. You've probably heard about the Bible Project. We've talked about the Bible Project before. Okay, if you go to BibleProject.com, you're going to find tons of videos that are really helpful visuals about what God is doing in His Word. So I want to have you take a look at, uh, there's a video that gives you an entire overview of the book of Daniel, which we'll be going through for the next two months. We, we had to narrow it down because it's like nine minutes long. We wanted to just make it about five minutes long or so. So let's take a look at this video, set the context for where we're headed for the next uh, couple months. Let's take a look. The book of Daniel The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable 
capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn, who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. 
we can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Again, I would strongly encourage you to um, check it out. Check out the whole video, BibleProject.com. Give you some context there to get us started. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot more time in context other than we're going to be diving into about 605 B.C. would be the time frame. And the area is Babylon. So open to Daniel chapter 1. It's on page 625 in the Brown Bible. I strongly encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along with us. We're going to read through the whole chapter. We're going to go through it in three chunks and, um, and get three different, I think, points out of it as we go through it. So Daniel chapter 1, page 625. And I want to pray before we dive in, but then dive right in. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you that uh, although these words are ancient, they are still relevant to us. And so again, Father, I pray, as so often we do, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are showing us through your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Uh, gave, the, gave them uh, new names. To Daniel, the, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. All right, let's, let's pause there. Again, the setting here, 605 B.C., Babylon. In Babylon, this is not the first time we encounter actually Babylon. If you were to read in the original Hebrew what's written in Daniel here, you'll find that it says that Nebuchadnezzar took the, the vessels uh, to the land of Shinar. Now, you might be like, Troy, I don't know where the land of Shinar is. That's fair enough. It's not the first time we hear it, though. In Genesis 10 and 11, we hear of this term, the land of Shinar, because it was this place where people came together in Genesis 11, they wanted to create this huge tower that reached to the heavens and make a name for themselves. This place was called the Tower of 
the Tower of Babel, which served as to form the foundations of the city of Babylon, which we are now at 1,600 years later. Lots of history on this site of Shinar. And things don't look very good for the Israelite people or the Hebrew people because Nebuchadnezzar had come over from the east to uh, Judah and surrounded the city of Jerusalem and besieged it, okay? And then had conquered the city and taken some of the stuff from the temple of God over to Babylon. And some of the spoils that they had also taken included young men. Now, these young men apparently could have appeared on the show The Bachelor if it existed back then, okay? Ladies, you tell me. It says... They were men of nobility without physical defect, handsome. It says they were showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. I mean, these guys sound like they are awesome, right? Like Mr. Wonderful. Have you seen the dolls, Mr. Wonderful dolls? I got a picture of them here. You seen this? Okay, you push the button on his hand and he says, Oh, can't your mother stay another week? Actually, I'm not sure which way to go. I'll turn in here and ask directions. Okay? That's Daniel and Hananiah. And, I mean, this is, this is, it seems like that's kind of how they're presented. But what happened was, so the idea was that Nebuchadnezzar was going to take some of these young men and take them back to Babylon, teach them the language of Babylon, the ways of Babylon, and then send them back to their homelands eventually, uh, beefed up, if you would, intellectually, so they could influence their homelands for the ways of Bab- Babylonians. Now, all kidding aside, think about how this would have been if you're a young man in the room, or if you know a young man, think about what it would have been like to have your entire life ripped away from you. I mean, you're basically abducted, you're taken captive, you're you're enslaved, taken away from everything that you know, taken to a land you've not been to, where they speak a language you don't understand. This would have been traumatic for these young men. However, it seems as though there were potentially upsides, including the rations. Because they get to eat food from the king's table and wine, okay? So from the king's table, sounds great. Now, I don't know if you remember what what it looks like, or what they talk about being besieged. You know what besieged means when a city's besieged? It means there's a big wall around your city, and another army comes and just sets up camp around it until you either come out and fight, or you're starved out. And so there's a pretty good chance these young men had not had a good meal in a long time. So they come over to Babylon and they are allowed to eat from the king's tables. Okay? Of these four young men, of these men, though, the four young men that stick out are these guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, back in those days, the names that people had were so critical to kind of their identity and who they were. All these names were Hebrew names meant to point to God in the first order of business for the Babylonian training or indoctrination or brainwashing, if you would, was to change their names to Babylonian names. And so we have up here the contrast of the names that are given. Now, any name that has El at the, at the end or someplace in there is going to have El, it means Elohim. It's Hebrew for God. Uh, Yahweh or any I-A-H name, if you're Jeremiah or Elijah or any of those kinds of names, you're going to have Yahweh in your name. So Daniel's name means God is my judge. If that's you, if you didn't know that, if you're here and you're Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael is who is like God and Azariah is Yahweh has helped. And they said, no, no, your names now are going to be Belshazzar, Daniel. So may Bel or Marduk, the supreme Babylonian god, protect his life. Shadrach, which is command of Aku, the moon god of the Babylonians. Meshach, he gets it the worst, right? They just slap him right in the face. Like, who's like God? How about this? Who's like Aku, the moon god? 
And then Azariah gets Abednego, servant of Nabu. Nabu, that's not, the, that's not where Jar Jar Binks is from. Okay, that is the son of Marduk here. So, so names mean so much as the first order of business. Now, I'm going to show you what this is like to have your name changed. Sir, can you help me out uh, for everyone's sake? What is your name? Jim? What would you say? It was Jim, right? It's Jim. All right, Jim. Can everyone say hi, Jim? Hi, Jim. Yeah, hi, Jim. You know, you, lo- you look like a Jim. You look like a Jim. So, so there's this tension. See, I learned from Dr. Marks that apparently our names, there's something about our names that they're, the, they're, they're our favorite word. Did you know that your name is your favorite word, especially when it's said well and in good content and context? Have you ever noticed that when you're in a room talking to somebody and somebody else over there says your name, you're like, oh, what's this is the beautiful sound that just happened over here. What just happened? I stopped listening to you because my sound was over there. So our names, when I'm working with couples, I'm always telling couples, hey, when you're trying to connect and bond and attach, use their first name because they just love that. It's, it's one of the ways that we connect. And when you don't hear that name, you don't hear it right, there's a tension, isn't there, Jim? There's a tension. And, and what's, what's funny about that, too, is I'm talking to Jim over here, and Jim Newberg's over there going, well, he keeps talking to me. See, there's this tension in this name. And, and here's why I bring this up, this name stuff, because it's, for me, it's so significant that even though these guys, Daniel, and they have all their names changed, they don't fight that. They don't, they don't take a stand about their names, which are so critical to them. They take a stand about something else. You know what I know what they take a stand about? Cucumbers. Cucumbers. Ready? Here we go. Second chunk of text. Here we go. Verse 8. Track with me. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over them, verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but water to eat, or sorry, vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. See, I told you, vegetables, cucumbers, right here. Okay? Now what's really going on here is that Daniel is taking a stand. He puts his stake in the ground. He draws his line in the sand. He makes a conscious decision to swim upstream so that he'll not be defiled. Now, I I didn't want to open the message with this talk about New Year's resolutions because I feel like it's almost cheesy at this point because we always talk about New Year's resolutions this time of year. But I can't, I have to talk about it now because it's right here in the text. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. Now, Merriam-Webster defines uh, resolution as the act or process of resolving. Now, my guess is that it's very likely that, that many of you in here started 2019 with some kind of resolve, with some sort of maybe resolutions. Maybe you want to lose weight or pray more or stop biting your nails. Or maybe for you, your resolution is to stop lying to yourself about making lifestyle changes. Whatever it is, 
Sometimes we stick with them, sometimes we don't. I have a friend who found out uh, three years ago, he told me at lunch, he's like, hey, Troy, I found out that, that soda's not good for you. It's like, really? Whoa, that's crazy. And so he said, yeah, I, I want to stop drinking. Three years ago, he stopped drinking soda, and he hasn't had a drink since of soda. And so we're like, hey, bravo, great, good job. I think a lot of times, though, we don't make New Year's resolutions. We make resikindas, right? So we're like, we kind of want to do that. But then at the end of January, we get, we've lost our resolve by then already, right? Daniel here is not making a resikindas. He makes a res- he's resolved. He puts his stake in the ground. He sets, he sets this thing in here. and He's like, draws line. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to eat this food. Now, I don't want to go into a ton of it, but there's, there's, different, there's, there's different reasons why scholars believe that the food was going to be an issue. One reason he gives, or the scholars give, would say, well, they think he didn't want to eat the food because it would have been offered as to sacrifice to idols, which would have been against his conscience. He didn't want to do that. Some don't think that was the case. Some, like the Bible Project, I think are holding to the fact that they didn't want to break the Levitical code, which says you can't eat food with blood in it, kind of like kosher. It's got to be kosher, and it wasn't kosher. And so uh, there's a good chance that what was going on. He didn't want to eat that food. But some others make a good case that the reason Daniel didn't want to eat the food was because of the hospitality culture, which meant that when you share a meal with someone, you're almost making a covenant with them. And he's like, I, I'm not going to eat this food from your table because I don't want to make a covenant with you because I already made a covenant with the true God and the true king. I'm not exactly sure, but whatever the case is, is we know that he resolved to not be defiled. To not be defiled. Now, in the 12 years that I've spent as part of the family here at Kettlebrook, I can't remember a time that any of you have used that word ever. Defiled. Right? Do you hear that? Do you talk about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's defiled. The best thing I can think of is my bathroom on most days is defiled because my sons, they never wash their hands ever, okay? After six and eight years, respectively, of training them all day long, every day, they have to do this. We tell them, hey, can you wash your hands? And they forget. They just, they're just busy, you know? So if you want to know what defiled is, you probably should come to my house, uh, and I'll tell you what it is in the bathroom. Anyway, the point is, defiled is this term that means polluted or impure. It is the opposite of purity and holiness, and Daniel's resolved. He's like, I am not going to be defiled. Now, one of the things that, that I want to address here is that I think very often when it comes to people understanding Christianity or following Jesus, I feel like it's very often perceived that our faith is about not doing things. It's like, okay, well, you follow Jesus. Well, now what you, you can't do, you can't have sex before marriage. You can't get drunk anymore. You can't fudge in your taxes. You can't do all kinds of these things. Because those things would maybe defile you. We don't say that. We, we kind of think that. And, and yes, God wants more for us. There's, he's like, there's, these are things I don't want you to do. But it's not about what you don't do. It's about God's holiness. It's about His glory and His majesty and His impurity that is so much greater than anything that these other things can offer to us. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics in Oxford. He wrote a book called Against the Flow. It's about Daniel. In this book, he talks about, about holiness and how we've wrongly interpreted it as a list of wrong things. Okay? In the eyes of many people, God has lost his glory and value. Holiness has degenerated into an exclusively negative concept. Far from thinking God's holiness is glorious, they associate holiness with drabness and the absence of life and color, the very opposite of glory. So I kind of want to just, I feel like when Daniel says he doesn't want to be defiled, it's, because, it's not because like, well, this is, I can't do this. He's saying God is so much more glorious than these things. 
When I was uh, in college, I had uh, uh, resolved to ask uh, a gal named Stephanie to be my wife. And so I had to go to figure out how to get a ring. And fi- I didn't know anything about rings. Those guys, we don't know anything about rings until it becomes very relevant. So uh, at, the, at the time, went to Goodman's Jewelers down State Street. It was a place I could walk to when I was in college there and, and learned a ton about diamonds. One of the things I, I didn't know was that I thought it was always like the bigger the diamond, the more expensive it is. That's not always the case. There's other things that come into factor, and one of them is something called clarity. Clarity has to do with how, how many impurities are inside the diamond. What that means is when the light shines through the diamond, if there's a bunch of impurities, it's not ref- refracted out as it's meant to, and so it's distorted. And that's, that's why if you even find a small diamond, but it's rated F for flawless, you will pay a ton of money for it because of the way it shines and it's brilliant. This is, this is what I think Daniel's seeking is, is to be resolved to not be defiled so he can reflect God's holiness, his character. Another uh, illustration of this is when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses his terms about how we are to be salt. And Tim Keller is a pastor and author. He was recently invited this last year to speak to Theresa May, who's the British Prime Minister and British Parliament, and they asked him the question, what does Christianity have to offer society in the 21st century? And Keller, Jesus is the answer, but Keller went to the Sermon on the Mount and used this idea of salt because he said salt doesn't only just bring out flavor, although it should, it should also be a preservative. And he says, here's the point. Jesus is making salt is only effective when it's different. Salt's only effective when it's kind of, when it's set apart from that which it's trying to preserve or bring. It's not supposed to be the meat. It's supposed to be different from the meat. That's what makes it effective. And so what Daniel is doing here, he wants to be undefiled so he can shine brilliantly the character and holiness of God, and he wants to be not defiled so he can enhance the flavor of the world that he's living in, pointing to, to God. Now, I will acknowledge that it seems as though when Daniel is making this resolve in here, he's resolved to not do something, which I just said, oh, well, isn't Christianity all about what we don't do? It says Daniel was resolved to not eat the king's food. But look at what he does. He doesn't just say, I'm not going to do that. He comes up with an alternative that does three things. Number one, his alternative is going to honor God. Number two, his alternative is not going to defile him. And number three, it's going to be considerate of those who he is around. Notice this. Daniel has, says, but Daniel resolved in verse 8 not to defile himself with the royal food. But look what it says. Um, he asked permission. Okay? He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. He's like, hey, I'm not going to defile myself. Can I not defile myself? He asks permission. And notice how much trust Ashpenaz must have given Daniel because he even tells him where he's afraid. He doesn't have to tell him. Ashpenaz could have said, nope, forget it. But he says, actually, I'm afraid the king might kill me. And at the end of the day, in spite of the favor that God has shown uh, Daniel through Ashpenaz, Ashpenaz still says, no, I don't want you to do this experiment with the vegetables. And so Daniel's like, okay, I'm resolved. I just got to know. So I'm going to ask permission again. And so he asked permission from the guard who's directly above him now. He says, hey, can, can we just get like 10 days just to try this vegetable thing out? Like what can happen in 10 days? You know, let's give me 10 days to try this thing out. Okay. And so the guard allows him to do this. So they eat vegetables for 10 days. And then I want to tell you something crazy, something miraculous that happens. It's absolutely mind blowing. 
It is cosmically transcendent. After eating vegetables for 10 days, they're healthier. Can you get your bulletins out? You've got to write this down. Eating vegetables will make me healthier. There you go. You learn something new every day, folks, right? I don't want to belabor that. That's not, that's not the point of this text, okay? But I do want to say, like, as a family, we, we need to actually, as obvious it is, I think we need to consider that we, sh- we, can, we should be eating healthy. Anyway, back to the narrative. At the end of their 10 days, Daniel has proactively found a way to, number one, honor God, number two, not defile himself, and number three, be considerate of everyone else around him. Think about this. Ashpenaz and the guard both look good because of what they've done. And so let's finish off the narrative here in the third chunk. Verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, the whole reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they were blessed. Daniel said, hey, I'm going to honor God, not, not defile myself, and consider those around me. And he does this, and he was blessed, blessed by God and blessed by the people that he is around. But here's what I want to tell you. When you are resolved, just because you are resolved to do something that will honor God and, and not defile yourself, that does not mean that you will be blessed maybe like Daniel is from both directions here, okay? That's the prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel. just want to make that clear. John the Baptist wanted to follow God and honor God and do all those things, and he was beheaded. Jesus was uh, put on a cross. All 12 of his disciples were martyred, except well, John, who was exiled to an island where he died by himself. Paul was killed and martyred, and it just goes on and on. It doesn't mean that, that this is going to be how it plays out. Sally, the, the, our sister in Christ, who we hear about from Chad from time to time, uh, this last week she was resolved to host the first ever uh, gathering of people from a Muslim background that, that, that maybe want to follow Jesus, and 43 people came. Praise God. 43. Somehow one of them told her cousin who told her uncle. And I think you know how that goes. Abuse to her and her children, locked up, no food. Didn't turn out the way it turned out here in Daniel. It doesn't always turn out like that. But she's resolved like Daniel was. What about you? What are you resolved about? What are you resolved about? Where do you take your stand? Where do you put your stake in the ground? And why? I think there's a pretty good chance everyone in here, every one of you in here is resolved about something. But whatever that thing is, I've got two things that I want to ask you about it. Is it worth your resolve? Is the thing that you are resolved about worth your resolve? Well, the second question I want you to ask is, is the things that you're resolved about, are they, are, they, are they about you? Are they about something greater than you? Are they about God? I was wrestling this week a little bit with why, why Daniel didn't take his stand with the names. I was like, Daniel, I was thinking, Daniel, why, why did you not make a bigger deal about the names and why did you go after the food thing? 
I don't know the answer. But I think it starts with him listening to God. It starts with him listening to God and saying, God, you have to leave me in this. But, but something that came to mind just yesterday as I was still wrestling through this was maybe this. Maybe perhaps Daniel was standing on the ruins or at least on top of the ruin, the ruined tower of Babel thinking to himself, it doesn't matter what my name is. The very place where people were like, hey, it's about making a name for myself. Daniel's like, I don't, we don't care what our names are. We care about God's name. We care about him and what he is about, that he is honored, that he is glorified. How do you decide where to pick your battles? Where to put your stake in the ground? I think you need to ask yourself the question is, is it worth my resolve as I listen to God? What is he saying? And is this about me or about him? So throughout this series, what we're going to do is we're going to try to bring some of you up here and have you share um, in ways that we, we feel like you're trying to do this. You're trying to swim upstream. You're trying to have integrity in the midst of adversity. And so uh, this morning, I want, uh, I want to bring up a brother of ours, Eric Croner. So Eric, why don't you come on up here? Um, Eric is not typically uh, up here uh, as part of our family. He's typically leaving, living in Chad. You've heard us talk about him a lot, but he and Molly happen to be home right now. Did not want to miss this opportunity to have Eric uh, share with us. And so uh, Eric is a man of great integrity, one of the, the top of the men that I respect in my life just because I've seen it lived out in a variety of different contexts, not only in Chad, but here as well. And one of the, um, the, the kind of interesting stories I was going to start with was one of the first times I saw Eric live this out was when Stephanie and I had a chance to go visit him in, in Amtaman. And we had to go register. And I'm watching Eric live these things out. I'm kind of like not understanding what's going on, but I'm going... You should help me out. Eric, tell, tell, me, tell everyone that story. It's a great story. Yeah, it was a fun visit. Um, <clears throat> so you guys had just arrived, and it's mandatory for everybody in our village to go visit the police and present yourself and provide documentation of who you are because they will tell you it's their job to protect you, their job to protect the locals. Um, and if something were to happen to you and they didn't even know you were in town, uh, it would be on their head. So uh, it's a reasonable a reasonable uh, request, and of course, you know that Chad has had issues with terrorism and terrorists in the past, and so, fair enough. So, um, we're, we're all set. We've got our, our copies of passports and pictures, and I think uh, uh, Troy and Steph were in tow, um, and we're ready. Um, and then the guy says, so, uh, that will be 10,000 francs per person that you want to register. That's like $20 a person. I'm like, and I knew that was way too high. Um, and so we're like, well, what do you guys use that money for? And they're like, oh, you know, we need to buy more pens and paper. And we're like, okay. Um, and then I see my neighbor there, and he's, he, works in the, he works there, and I, and I know what he uses his money for on a regular basis, and we're, that's going to the bar, a little bar. And so I'm like, I think um, we're being taken advantage of here. Um, now, it's important to recognize that in this setting, in the African setting, this is the way things have been done for generation upon generation. Um, it's very important in that culture to honor and show respect for authorities, for chiefs, for elders. And one of the ways they often will do this uh, is they'll give a little bit of thank you, so to speak, a little bit of what we would call tea money. Um, and so it would not necessarily be viewed in every instance as being corruption or bribe or even abnormal. Um, so it's really important as we grow in these contexts to really understand the culture and begin to discern, you know, what's an appropriate compensation um, and what, what is just them trying to take advantage of us. Um, and unfortunately, some non-governmental organizations um, will just simply pay this team money without asking any questions, increasing the incentive to increase the frequency and amount with which we pay team money. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a, le- uh, 
the importance of integrity there. Um, so how do we navigate this? Um, well, we kind of we thought about it. We thought, well, let's ask for a receipt. Um, because um, if this is a legitimate admin fee, we want to pay it. We're more than willing to pay for it. And if this is a legitimate admin fee, they should be more than willing to hand us a receipt. The thing is, nobody wants to put their name on an illegitimate receipt, right? Mm -hmm. No one wants to be caught for that, and we don't want to out outright accuse someone of corruption. Um, so this is kind of being as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. As innocent as doves. Um, and so um, in that context, we strive um, to honor God by living a life of integrity, by uh, constantly striving to not... Uh, to fear God and not to fear man and uh, their coercion, um, to not defile ourselves by participating or propagating um, corruption. But we also want to consider others, um, and that's being a part of the community that we minister to. Um, it's not just aiding the community like other non-government organizations do, but it's uh, speaking Arabic, setting up home and family for long periods of time, becoming a part of the community, embracing it, and respecting their culture. Um, and so through this instance, and hopefully um, consistently through many others, um, we hope some people come away saying, hmm, these Jesus followers are different. Mm. Um, they fear God, they honor God, and in fact, they're a lot more just than a lot of the big people in our, in our own religion. Yeah. Salt. 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 Mm -hmm. So salt enhancing the flavor um, and preserving as well. Thanks, Eric. Um, and I've seen you live that out in many other ways. You're making those decisions on a daily basis, and I appreciate that. Talk to us about Sally a little bit. We, we share a little bit about Sally. I mean, this, she, she's, she's been trying to follow Jesus, and, and tell us about how you've seen her living out these kinds of things we see Daniel demonstrating as well. Yeah, as, as I reflected upon it, I thought, you know, it was, it was over 15 years when she, uh, that she was engaging the gospel, engaging gospel bearers, until she really made a decision to begin to follow and then everything just kind of started to crumble underneath her. Um, she goes and tells her husband that she wants to start to follow Christ, and he divorces her, leaving her without any ability to provide for herself or her five kids. She starts to become ridiculed. She starts having her possessions and food taken away from her. Um, she starts seeing her kids being abused uh, and locked up, threatened by fire and gun. I mean, these things are all crumbling around her, and she's like, what, am, what have I just resolved to do? Um, but she held tight to the vision that she received in a dream where Jesus came to her and said, don't worry, seek me first and seek my kingdom and I will provide for all of these things for you and just keep telling people about me. And she clung to that. Hmm. Um, and <clears throat> of course, she continued to tell people about Jesus. She started to cast out demons and heal people and the religious authorities were not very happy about this. Um, and so she was called uh, into what was essentially an interrogation, and she knew not what was going to happen to her. She could be um, beaten, thrown in jail, maybe even killed. She didn't know. Um, but she considered others, and she realized these were very highly respected people, and so she obeyed, and she went to the interrogation. Um, and throughout the whole, she, was, she had water thrown at her. She was um, uh, verbally uh, abused and at one point in time threatened to say, you will not speak about Jesus again. Um, but throughout the whole interrogation, um, she spoke humbly and kindly and with respect, showing and considering them and for who they were in the community. Um, but when she was asked to decide between obeying God or man, she told them that I must obey God. Jesus told me, I need to tell people who you are and what you've done for me. Um, and so 
that was really that balance of um, not being defiled, honoring God, but considering others. Yeah, amen. She's been modeling that for us from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Eric. One of the things that I was thinking about having you share is just the fact that because you live in, you currently live in such a different context, people might be thinking, I did, I've never paid tea money, Troy. I don't know what to do with that, and that's not necessarily going to apply when I go to work tomorrow uh, here in the county. Uh, Eric, you're from West Bend. I mean, you're from here, so you understand also what it's like to live here. How would you um, share with us on things that we could think through in, that, in, that, in our context here? How could you encourage us? What would you, uh, would you say to that? Well, I think I'd say that it looks, it's going to look different for all of us because we all have very unique gifts and talents and we all have unique idols and struggles, things we hold on to and things that hold on to us. Um, for me, I had a light bulb moment when I was in pediatric residency in Milwaukee and we had some friends at Meadowbrook with us and they actually chose to not live in Wauwatosa. They chose to live in Milwaukee in a lower middle class neighborhood. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? Like, is that even safe? Like, what are you going to do for your kids? Is there going to be school? Do they even want you in that community? Um, but for them, um, as they process this, honoring God meant obedience to what he was calling them to. Hmm. Honoring God meant living a life with open hands and not placing the American dream above the kingdom dream. Um, defilement for them meant not believing that God could protect them. And defilement for them meant... Uh, believing that only a specific standard of living could bring them happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, considering others, um, they knew that they, if they wanted to be light and salt, you really need to be within the community. You need to live next to people, live amongst them. If you really care about them and you want to understand their struggles and challenges, you need to live in, the same, in very similar circumstances. Mm. Um, so the point here is uh, not that we should all move uh, to the inner city or to rural Africa. The point is... Um, that we should all be asking the Spirit to reveal to us um, if there's anything we're holding back from God. Um, Is there anything that's off the table for him? And uh, that could be our reputation, that could be our pocketbook, it could be our standard of living, our safety, our comfort, our relationships, how we spend our time. Um, You know, how we spend our time on social media. Um, Do we merely call out problems in society, or are we actively engaging to solve them for the advancement of the kingdom? Um, I will personally uh, admit, and Troy, I've told you this, you guys challenge me. And every, every kettle broker in here who decides to foster and adopt, that scares me. Um, mm-hmm. To bring a stranger into my home, to my little inner sanctum, and reveal who I am, that, that scares me, and it challenges me. Um, and so being a proactive, positive solution, um, I, kinda, I see it as kind of a spectrum um, or a progression we can be here and be part of the problem, and that's when we're defiling ourselves with the, the ungodly things of, of the culture. We can be neutral, which means we're not necessarily a problem or part of the problem, but we're not necessarily part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Or we can be gospel bearers, and we can proactively involve the issues that God brings upon our yeah. heart. Salt, again. Yeah. Anything else that you'd encourage us with? Um, I think I would just say, um, don't let those moments pass you by. Uh, when the Spirit is convicting you of something or anything, um, and your Spirit might be saying to you, oh, that's, that sounds pretty scary, or I, and I could never do that. Mm-hmm. Don't, let that don't let that feeling go. Um, I really appreciate Oswald Chambers, um, and I want to share a quote from him. He says, um, The battle is lost or won in the secret places of the will before God. When the Spirit of God apprehends me, it must be wrestled out alone before God, and I must resolutely 
go through the hell of a renunciation before him. The reason the battle is not won is because I try to win it in the external world first, in the heat of the moment. Get alone with God, fight it out before him, and settle the matter there once and for all. That is the great divide in the life, and from that point we either go towards a more and more dilatory and useless type of Christian life, or we become more and more ablaze for the glory of God, my utmost for his highest. So I would say, don't let those moments pass you by, no matter how difficult they may seem, or even how small or insignificant they may seem. Because um, even with our, our tiniest of faith steps, God injects his infinite power and, and expands it unbelievably for the kingdom. Um, so don't miss out on, on what the good Father has for you. Awesome. Amen. Can we give Eric a round of applause? Thanks, brother. It's so good to have you guys while you're here. In closing, I just I wanted to go back to a thought that I taught through in Luke chapter 9 on creating culture a couple of months back. There's a, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there's this verse. I didn't elaborate on it when I taught it then. It's been sitting in my mind. And it's this idea where it says the words, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, he put his stake in the ground. He, he, he set his face. He was resolved to go to Jerusalem where he would take his stand. See, Jesus put a stake in the ground. A huge T-shaped stake. That then he went and hung on and gave his life on. He proactively took his stand to honor God the Father, to not defile himself, but to consider those around him who he was praying for as they were killing him. If you're here this morning, you're feeling discouraged and you're beating, beat up about swimming upstream, remember there's one who has gone before you who has taken his stand on your behalf, the one who, who has taken your defilement and offered to exchange your defilement for His holiness, His brilliance, His glory. If you're here this morning and you're kind of allowing the current of the world to carry you every which way that it would take you, please know there is one who is calling you up, calling you towards His brilliance and His majesty, something greater. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You so much that You have taken Your stand And the greatest stand you ever took was sending your son, not just to be born, but to plant a giant stake in the ground, a wooden cross that he would die on, to undo the defilement. That he did not seek to build a tower to make a name great for himself like those who were in battle, but he humbled himself. So, Father, your name would be made great. May we humble ourselves when we take our stands alongside of you, Father. As we seek your Son, show us what you've done through him for your glory and our holiness. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.